And now it's time to talk to Dr. Rongan Chatterjee. He's a practising GP and the author of last year's bestseller, The Four Pillar Plan. Now he's on a mission to help us combat stress. His new book is called The Stress Solution, and I can tell you it's an enlightening and a calming read. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's estimated that 60 to 80% of GP consultations are related to stress. Has that always been so, or do you think it's a problem of modern life? I think it's a problem of modern life without any question at all. I've been a practicing doctor now for nearly 18 years. And even if I think back to 10 years ago, I don't think I saw as many stress-related problems as I do today. Even five years ago, I think this is a problem that's getting worse, which is no doubt why the World Health Organization are calling stress the health epidemic of the 21st century. And yes, statistics and science shows us that about 80% of what I see as a GP in any given day is in some way related to stress. Now, that sounds like a lot, but when I explain what those symptoms are, I think suddenly you'll start to realise actually why stress is so prevalent and how many different symptoms it causes. So, you know, as a doctor, every day I see things like anxiety, low energy, low moods, insomnia, inability to concentrate, poor memory, even things like low libido, Mm -hmm. gut problems such as irritable bowel syndrome, and even things like high blood pressure, obesity and type 2 diabetes, actually all of these seemingly separate symptoms, when we look at them on a root cause level, stress is a key driver. And that's really why I wrote this book, is to help people understand just how prevalent stress is, but more importantly than that, what simple things that we can all do to actually help ourselves manage it. Um, I really loved the notion of micro-stress doses, which I hadn't been able to put an explanation to them before reading your definition. Tell us about micro-stress doses. Well, this really comes down to this whole idea that all of us have our own personal stress threshold. Basically, we want to stay as far away from that threshold as we possibly can. A micro-stress dose is something that, in isolation, actually doesn't do much. Mm -hmm. It's not too bad. But when you add it up on top of other micro-stress doses, your stress load adds up, it mounts up, and it brings you closer and closer to your threshold. And when you're at your threshold, that's when things start to go wrong. That's when you might you know, feel tightness in your shoulder, you might feel backache, you might have a stiff neck, um, you might start to overreact, get emotional, um, have road rage and when, you, when you're out in your car, as opposed to when you're feeling calm and you're further away from that threshold. And actually, someone cuts you up in the roads and it doesn't bother you because you're feeling chilled. A typical day for so many of us is that we go to bed late because we've you know, maybe been binge-watching Netflix the night before. And again, I like to do that, so I'm not, I'm not sort of <laughs> criticising people who do that. So your alarm goes off, let's say, at 6.30. For many of us, it's our phone. So at 6.30, we're in a deep sleep, phone alarm goes off, it jolts us out of it. Micro-stress dose number one. We're feeling tired, so we press the snooze button. Six minutes later, it goes off again, micro-stress dose number two. Then we think, oh, I probably should get up now. So we look at the phone, and actually we might go onto our email, see what's been going on. We see four work emails that we've not replied to, and we think, oh, I didn't get around to that yesterday, I need to to get that done quickly. Micro-stress dose number three. Then you might get a ping from your gas company saying, actually, your gas bill's due, or your credit card bill's due, micro-stress dose number four, etc., etc., etc. You know, you get up late, your toast burns, because actually, you know what, you weren't watching it, and then you can't have breakfast before you leave the house. And I try and make the case in my book that actually, for many of us, before we've even left the house in the morning, we've been exposed to an average of 10 to 15 micro-stress doses. You're leaving the house in the morning much closer 
hits your stress threshold than you would have otherwise, which means it's going to take less in the day to tip you over. So over the last couple of years, I've come to see that my phone, that little you know portable miracle worker, that magnificent piece of technology, it's really bad for me if I don't make efforts to control my usage. And so much of what you just said, it's about the fact that our phone now can deliver all this stuff basically to our pillow, isn't it? So do you think it can be that our phones make us sick? And what can we do to mitigate the effects of it? Technology, and in particular smartphones, are a big source of our stress. You know, I, I say in the book that they're a shiny box full of micro stress doses. <laughs> as soon as you open it up, actually, they just start flying at your head. Mm-hmm. And it's not really about demonising them because actually they're fantastic bits of kit. It's not an anti-technology book at all. It's trying to understand how do we use this technology in a way that it helps us rather than harms mm-hmm. us. And I can tell you, you know, and I've seen this time and time again with patients, if you are on your phone from the minute you wake up, to the minute you go to sleep at night, that is coming at a cost for so many of us. So how can we erect some sort of fences up around our digital use? A simple thing for me is the two sort of bookends of the day. Can we guard the first part of the day and the last part of the day? So I'm a huge fan of having some phone-free time first thing in the morning. I think it is so critical, even if it's just 10 minutes, because if you wake up and the first thing you do is put this phone on, You go into reactive mode immediately. You're going straight into what other people want you to see, whether it's text messages, WhatsApp messages, emails, social media, what the latest news channels say is the most alarming bit of news to sort of jolt you up with that morning. And so, you know, ideally, I think we should have a golden hour each morning with hopefully an hour where we don't go on our phone. Or if we need it for something like, for example, I like to meditate first thing in the morning Mm -hmm. and I use the Calm app on my phone. I put my phone on airplane mode so that actually I can use some of its functionality but I can't see text messages and emails and all the other things that might come in. That's a really good tip because actually I use my phone to listen to audiobooks which I find is a very enriching good thing but then my challenge is that I don't sneak onto my email. So I'm going to do that in the future. That's well, well good. you know, that, that, that goes much further than that. that that's a great example but we, we can think about music. 10 or 15 years ago, actually, we would listen to music probably relatively mindfully compared to how we do it today. In fact, I was chatting to someone a few days ago um, on my podcast, actually, and he, he said to me that actually the original idea behind the iPhone from Steve Jobs was actually just to say instead of carrying a music player and a phone, you can actually just put them together and actually just have one device. Mm-hmm. And he didn't actually foresee all these apps and all these other things that we now use our phones for. But what's really interesting is that I've noticed, so I don't live in... London, but I'm often here for work. And I've got, you know, just under two hours on a fast train to London. And I've noticed that because now a lot of our music's on our phone, that I'll be listening to music, but then I'll also, you know, every few minutes you start to look at your email or your social media. And our attention is constantly being fractured. And that is, I see, one of the biggest stresses in society. So, you know, a couple of years ago, actually, I realised that music, for example, has become so disposable now. You know, we can get anything we want on our phones. We don't even have to listen to whole albums anymore. And I went into a a shop um, and I said, right, I'm going to buy a CD player because I'm really into my music. And I said, do you have anything that actually doesn't have Wi-Fi or Bluetooth or streaming capability? He said, yeah, we do have one, but why would you want that? And I said, no, that's exactly what I'm looking for. He said, we don't really sell many of these because we think they're going to be obsolete. I said, no, that's exactly what I'm looking for. What it's done for me is it means like I've got it in my kitchen and I've got my old CD collection out. And when I'm chilling out at home, I put a CD on and I just 
I listen to it and I, I listen to it from start to finish. I don't constantly flick from track to track. My attention's not being fractured. As you said with the audio book or music, it's like we're, we're the reason mindfulness is all the rage now is because we've literally turned into a mindless species in terms of how we do everything. Mm-hmm. And I think phones are a big part of that. Um, tell us about the modern war on love. It's one of my favourite chapters. Yeah, I mean, this chapter's not really about technology, but I think technology plays a role here in the sense that intimacy, I think, is something that is, you know, slowly and insidiously being eroded out of our lives, whether it's with our friends or particularly with our partners. And I make the case that many of us actually are having eye affairs with our phone uh, in the sense that we we probably know and touch the curvy contours of our phone more than we do our partners. And what I mean by that is is that even when we're with our partners, we're often distracted. Uh, I know the feeling when you come in through the door and you've been working and as you're walking through the door, you're sort of half trying to do your emails as you come in or, or check something and your kids say something to you or your wife does and actually you're not present for that interaction. And I think guarding our digital borders has an immediate take-home effect on our relationships with people who are close to us, whether it's friends, family, work colleagues, partners. And so... I kind of feel that actually it's something we all need to prioritise a bit more. Just some simple house rules such as, you know what, when I come home from work, I'm going to put my phone away and spend 10 minutes being really present with my partner or with my children. And I think the quality of the time you spend with someone is arguably more important than the quantity. My own daughter called me out on this a couple of years ago when she was four. You know, I was playing with her, but... You know, my mind was slightly on my emails or something I was trying to finish. And she said to me after a while, I said, Daddy, you're not really here, aren't you? You can always rely on your kids to call it mm-hmm. as it is. And that really, really has changed my behavior because I thought, she's right. You know, I'm physically here in the room with her, but mentally I'm a million miles away. The studies now showing that even if we are sat here, as we're sat across the table now, we've got, and obviously my phone is here, it's there, even if it's face down, we're still distracted. Mm-hmm. If you complete a task that you have to do, but your phone is to hand, you've completed it with an IQ about 10 points lower than if it wasn't there. Mm-hmm. That's how distracting these things are. So it's about trying to get back to basics, the sort of thing we were all doing about 10 or 15 years ago. There's, a, I guess, another sort of situation here which will probably resonate with people is if people are in a romantic relationship, it's not uncommon now for two partners of any sort to be lying in bed together And actually, they're both on their phones. They're both living in their personalised worlds. They can watch their own custom stream on Netflix or their own emails or their own social media feed. The time that in the past they would have spent being intimate or cuddling, actually a lot of that is going out of society. And how do I know this? Well, this is what patients tell me day in, day out. Earlier on in the programme, we were talking about January publishing, which traditionally has been a lot about crash dieting. I loved all the stuff about food in your book. Tell us what your view is on how we might aspire to eat. Food is always something people are thinking about when we're trying to change our health. And actually, I'd say that that one of the things I'm really passionate about is when people are trying to change their diets, often, particularly in January, you know, for a week or two, they might be motivated. All right, I'm going to cut back on sugar. You know, December was craziness for sugar. I'm going to really cut back. And I find that willpower only lasts so long because ultimately if you're using sugar to compensate for the stresses in your life or to help soothe the stresses in your life, actually, you know, you're always going to be destined to go back to your pre-existing intake. And I see that time and time again. It's the same thing with booze. If you're using alcohol to deal with the stresses in your life, 
actually willpower will not be enough. You need to address some of that. Then there'll be less of an urge to use the alcohol, to use the sugar in that way. But in terms of diet, you know, one thing I'm, I'm a huge fan of is if people have tried to focus on what they eat without much effect, I'd say focus on when you eat. Because we know now from the Salk Institute in California where there's a lot of studies now, a lot of science on something called time-restricted eating, which is when you, they don't really focus on what you eat, it's when you eat. And we've got natural daily rhythms, what's called the circadian rhythm. And when we don't live in harmony with those rhythms, that is a big stressor on the body. Now, if we're talking about foods, right, we're not designed to eat food from the minute we wake up to lasting at night when we're in front of Netflix watching something, <laughs> right? We're not, we're not designed to do that. And a very simple thing people can think about doing is eating all the food that they're going to eat within a 12-hour window. So what does that mean? That would mean, let's say you have your breakfast at 7 a.m., you would finish eating your dinner by 7 p.m. or 8 till 8 or 9 till 9. It's not actually that difficult I, do, I mean, again, I've been doing it and it's dead easy. It's super simple. Mm -hmm. But if you don't think about it, often many of us are going to 14 or 15 hours. We're sort of snacking something at 6.30 and in front of the TV at night at about, you know, 9 o'clock or 9.30, we're snacking on something else. And actually many of us are going 14, 15 hours a day of eating. We know that if you give your body a 12-hour gap from food in every 24 hours, and hopefully you're sleeping for the majority of that time, you know, hopefully for seven or eight hours you're sleeping, Actually, there's all kinds of benefits, including improved immune system function, better blood sugar control, improved weight, so people can even lose weight doing this. And some studies are now showing that you can improve your fitness level. So some athletes are doing this. They're doing time-restricted eating. And it's a very simple thing that just helps you live a bit more in harmony with your natural rhythms. Mm -hmm. um, some people ask, can I go more aggressive than that? Yes, you can, but my whole approach is to try and take a rounded, a holistic approach to health. If you're managing to maintain all your food intake within 12 hours, you know, give yourself a tick and move on to something else. <laughs> it's, you know, many of us, we, we, we're quite reductionist about health. We think, oh, 12 hours works. Well, what if I restrict it to 10 hours? What I'm looking for is to help people make sustainable change. We can all go on a crash diet for a week and lose weight and feel good, right? That doesn't interest me. What interests me is helping people feel better in one week, in one month, in one year. Another lovely thing, which I've been doing with my son, I think this is great for kids, tell us about eating the alphabet. So in a nutshell, the food you eat, instead of thinking about energy and calories, we now need to think about information. Food is information. Basically, is the food that you are eating sending calm signals up to your brain or is it sending stress signals? And the, the reason I came up with this whole idea of eat the alphabet is we know one of the components of a healthy gut is diversity of gut bugs. How do you do that? You have a diversity of foods. Many of us, we have our favorites, our staples that we'll have multiple times a week. I know I've been guilty of doing this on many occasions. And this whole idea of eat the alphabet is can you eat 26 different plant foods in any given month? Not in a week. My whole approach is trying to make things achievable so that people think yeah I can do that and and it's a really fun thing to do with a family or with your children you engage them it's like oh you know mummy we, we had broccoli actually we already got B you know let's try something else let's you know let's try a different one let's let's try some blueberries for example oh that's B as well yeah you know <laughs> it is fun and we've we've rebranded um 
because we have quite a lot of A's already. So we've rebranded aubergine as eggplant because we don't have as many E's and courgettes as zucchini because hey, we have uh, plenty of carrots. I, I was going to go for the zucchini one. I thought <laughs> well, actually, I, I think I did that in the book. I had to, I had to take a bit of artistic license yeah. when we got to Z and I, I think I did put zucchini in there yeah. um, because, you know what, you've got to be a bit creative. What could we do for X? What could we do for X? You know what? I don't know how you pronounce it, but it's there's a Chinese watermelon, which is spelled X-I-G-U-A. Right. I think it's pretty hard to get in the UK, but if you're having 26 different plant foods in a month, it can very quickly start making a difference. That's brilliant. We're nearly out of time. I'm going to say to you, to tell us one more quick intervention, what do you want people to know about that I haven't asked you that might just help them improve their lives a little bit? I'll tell you the favourite part of my day, mm-hmm. okay, and it's related to the book, it's related to stress, and it's to do with gratitude. Okay, There's a lot of science now that gratitude helps our physical health, our emotional health, our psychological health. It helps us reframe our day and look at the positive that's happened. And a friend actually told me about this game a few years ago, and actually I've implemented it with my children and my wife. And every night at the dinner table, we all have to go around and answer three questions. What have I done today to make somebody else happy? What has somebody else done today to make me happy? And what have I learned today? And if I'm honest, you know, when my friend told me about it, I thought, oh, this is going to be really, really good for the kids. It's going to really help teach them. (laughs) And the reality is, it's probably just, if not more beneficial for my wife and I, because what it does, if we're coming into dinner time a bit stressed and anxious, there's a lot of going on, whether it's school, clubs after school, or whether I've got home late from work, actually it changes the dynamic instantaneously. And for those parents who are listening, if you know that feeling when you've asked your kids, you know, how was school today? What did you get up to? And you're met with blank faces. Actually, this game is a great way you start to learn things about each other. Like my daughter a few weeks ago said, oh, daddy, you know, um, Annabelle opened the door for me today and held it open as I walked through. And it sounds like a small thing, but what you're doing, A, with children, but also with yourself, is that you're helping to de-stress because you're training yourself to look at the positive that has happened on every day. And for most of us, there are positives in every day. Even if we've had a bad day, a stressful day, there are some nice things. And I think that's a very simple way of actually playing a gratitude game with your family. There's plenty more gratitude ideas in the book, but that's probably my favourite one. That's lovely. Dr Rangan Chatterjee, it's been a great pleasure. And talking to you and meeting you will go on my gratitude list the next time I write it. Oh, fantastic. And thank you for having me. (laughs) That's a pleasure. Thanks very much. (laughs) 